doesn't take a, a lot of discernment to look at the world and see that hopelessness kind of abounds. People have become hopeless in pretty much every area of life. Some people are hopeless in their jobs. Some people feel hopeless in their finances. Some people feel hopeless in their sin. Some people feel hopeless in their marriages. Some people feel hopeless about their children. Some even feel hopeless in their relationship and in their service to Jesus. And this hopelessness, it's seen in a lot of different ways. Hopelessness is seen in people who, who live life as though it's a constant ordeal. Right? For many people, their lives are one great big ordeal that begins the moment they get up and it doesn't end until they go back to bed that night. Hopelessness is seen in people who stop trying to improve their lives. They, their situation or the world around them. Many have resigned to the, the fact that the way things are right now, that's the best they can ever hope things to be. They've decided there's no point in trying to improve their life or their situation or anything else because nothing is ever going to happen. Hopelessness can be seen or, or rather heard in pessimistic and cynical words. Words of negativity and constant criticism usually flow from hearts filled with hopelessness. Right? Because let's remember, Jesus said that what's in our hearts, it flows out of our mouth. So our words, they always say something about the condition of our heart. So people often try to, to cover up the, the hopelessness they feel and the cynicism of their words by saying things like, well, they're just, they're just realists. Or they're just speaking the truth. Or, or the ever popular, just saying. The fact is, words and actions flow from a heart and they reveal very often a deep sense of hopelessness. Our culture, our community, and even our church is desperate for hope. Hope is one of the strongest forces on earth. Hope enables someone to believe that change can happen and that things can get better. Now, let me be clear. Hopeful people are not delusional people. Hopeful people don't ignore the problems in their lives or in the problems of the world around them. Hopeful people don't view things with a, a Pollyanna attitude that puts an unrealistic, positive spin on negative situations that are going on in them or around them. Hopeful people, they see the situation around them, the things that are going on in their lives, and they understand how bad it is, but they refuse to accept that what they're seeing or what they're experiencing is the best it can possibly be. Hopeful people are convinced that the world and things can get better. Hopeful people aren't wishful people. Now, there are two main differences between a wish and a hope. A wish is a far-fetched dream that we would really like to come to pass. While a hope is built on something that is real and solid. A wish is something that we would like just to happen. We wish it and suddenly it comes to pass. But a hope requires effort on our part and hopeful people will joyfully, enthusiastically do the work because they're convinced that the work makes a difference. Our world desperately needs hope and it desperately needs hopeful people. As believers in Jesus Christ, we ought to be the most hopeful people around. So we're going to start a series today 
that I believe will help us to become the hopeful people that the world needs. Open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 13 is where we're going to start. It's page 923 in the Pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 6 and 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you. And multiplying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God... Determining to show more abundantly the, to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it with an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the fail. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order, Melchizedek. title of the message this morning is The Anchor of Hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we come today with a desire just to meet with you and to know that you're here and you're at work in our lives. Father, we need you. We do live in a world that wrestles with hopelessness. And God, if we're all honest, we know what that wrestle feels like. We know what it is to feel hopelessness settle in our lives, to to begin to resign ourselves that things cannot change, to to let the, the hopelessness we feel in our hearts reign in the words that we say. God, through Christ, we have hope in your word. We have hope, Lord, and And we need you to renew that within us. That, Lord, the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, the words of our mouths, the priorities of our lives, the actions that we take would all speak of the fact we believe in the God of hope. That we are abounding with hope through the power of his Holy Spirit. Father, today, you know what's going on in the hearts and the minds of every person that's gathered in this place. You know who came in. Wrestling with hopelessness, you know, who came in on the on the verge of despairing and on about to give up. Father, today, speak to their hearts and give them hope where hopelessness reigns. Father, you know who's discouraged today, so give them encouragement. They would be strong in the Lord and the power of his mind. Father, you know who today does not know you. As their Savior, Lord, save them today and bring them to the place where they would have the hope of Christ that would reign in their lives. You know who's fallen back in their relationship with you, God. Today, restore them. Father, change us all that we would all be more like Jesus when we left here. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. We love you, Lord. Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in this service. And let us go forth today different because of the time we've spent here with you and in your word. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the original hearers 
recipients of this letter were suffering because of their faith in Jesus. The suffering was hard, it was continuous, and it showed no signs of letting up. They were spiritually discouraged, they were rapidly losing hope, and they were considering giving up on running the race that God had set before them. The author is seeking to encourage them to persevere in hope. Now, as we talk about hope, it is important to understand that hope in the Bible is more is far more than a far fetched wish we would love to come true. Right? As I said, hope is built on something. A biblical hope is a well grounded, well founded assurance that God will do what He has said He will do. A biblical hope carries with it the idea of expectation. When we hope in God, we expect that God will do all of the things that He has said He would do. And that God has said is really the key to it all. Notice that throughout this passage, that's what the author is bringing them back to. Right In verse 18, God spoke. He, he gave a promise to Abraham. Right? He, in verse 16 and 17, He confirmed that oath. Right? And so over and over and over again, God spoke and that produced hope. Verse 18, that, that people have fled for refuge and laid hold of that hope which was spoken of by God. And then in verse 19, this hope becomes the anchor for our souls. But this hope is all built upon God's word. Right? And so the, the key thing. Today is that God's word is the anchor of our hope. But if we want to have a biblical hope, then that hope must be anchored in the things that God has said, the things that God has revealed. Now, we're told to flee for refuge, to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. There are three ways that we do this. The first is that we take refuge in God's promises. When biblical authors wanted to point to someone who had faith, they always seemed to point to Abraham. He was the father of faith, as it says in Romans chapter 4. And the author of Hebrews is no different. He wants to point to someone who had hope, someone who had faith that God had spoken to. And so he, he points to Abraham, that God made a promise to Abraham. And he tells us a part of the promise that God gave him in verse 14. Surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. Now, there was more to the promise that God gave to Abraham when he called him. But he gives us two here. And the first is that I will bless you. Just a very simple in blessing. I will bless you. Right. God promised to bless Abraham all throughout his life. And these would be physical blessings and these would be spiritual blessings. These would be financial blessings. These would be blessings in every way that you can possibly imagine. These blessings would include God's promise or God's presence. They would include God's protection. It was just a, an overall blessing that if there was any way for a human being to be blessed, God would give that blessing to Abraham. It was a big deal. He also promised that in multiplying, I will multiply you, that he would multiply Abraham. Now, the promise of multiplying Abraham was significant in a couple of reasons. The first is that it was more than the promise of a single child. Right? The promise that God would make Abraham the father of many nations. So much so that his descendants would be like the, the sands on the seashore, the stars in the sky. That's a pretty big promise of how, 
how much Abraham would be multiplied by God. But the second reason this is so significant is that up to this point, Sarah had been barren. Right? There were no children. Abraham was about 75 years old when God gave him this promise. Sarah was about 65. It would be an understatement to say that they were both past childbearing years. I feel it's pretty likely that Abraham and Sarah had given up on the idea of ever having children at this point, much less Abraham being the father of many nations. Now, we're told in verse 15 that after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And the idea is that Abraham had to wait before God fulfilled the promise that he had given him. In fact, he had to wait 25 years before the first of these promises was fulfilled. I mean, can you imagine waiting 25 years for God to keep a promise? That when he gave it seemed impossible, but the longer you waited, the more impossible it seemed. But that's what Abraham did. He patiently endured. In fact, Romans 4 that I read at the beginning of service says that Abraham's faith and hope, it never wavered. But he waited on God to fulfill that promise. Abraham lived his life taking refuge in the promises of God. Abraham was convinced that God's promises were true. That the God who said, I I will give you children, would give him children. It didn't matter if he was 75 or 105. He just believed that God could do whatever he said he could do. It didn't matter if the promises were huge and enormous and greater than, than at that time anything anyone had ever heard of God promising or doing in a person's life. Abraham just believed that God was great. And that God could do whatever he said. He, he took refuge from that as he waited year after year after year. He just, I'm sure, kept repeating to himself, God has said, God has promised, and I will take refuge in the promises of God. Now, like Abraham, God has given us incredible promises. And we don't have time to get into all of them this morning, but there are three that are close to my heart. Three that speak to me in ways that many others do not. So let me just give you three that I find kind of amazing. That Jesus has changed me. Now, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I I don't know how you are. But I know as a kid, I heard pastors preach and they talked about getting saved at four and five and living for Jesus all of their lives. And I would love for that to be my testimony, to be what it is that happened to me. But that's really not what happened to me. I I was older, teenager, when I got saved. I, I didn't always live for Jesus, even after I had prayed and asked Jesus to save me. And in my life, there are significant things that I'm ashamed of. There are significant things in my past that haunt me about what I've done, things I've said, ways that I have acted. And at times, the enemy, he brings these things up. I can remember something I did 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And it just, oh, man, who am I to try to live for Jesus? Who am I to, you know, try to help other people follow Jesus? Who am I to stand up and proclaim, thus says the Lord? When I have done this and I have done that. 
But boy, it does my heart good to know that I'm not that guy anymore. I thought the person that did all of those things all of those years ago, he's gone. He's dead. Right? That instead, I, I am a new creation. I, Jesus has made me entirely new. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe there aren't consequences for things that I've done. And that doesn't mean that maybe people that knew me then will listen to me, that, that, that there's not a hindrance there. But it does mean that as far as God is concerned, all that's gone. All of that has passed away. The stuff that, that threatens to hold me back in my past, God doesn't hold that against me. God doesn't look at me and see the guy that did those things. He sees someone brand new, someone that he has recreated in the image of his son, someone that he is continually molding, continually shaping. And I find great peace and great joy and great hope in the fact that I'm not who I used to be, that Jesus has changed me. Another one that I find great hope in is that Jesus is on my side. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love this. What's God's standard? What is God's desire for us that you may not sin? We know that. You were raised in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. You've heard the importance of holiness all your life. And if you love Jesus and you really believe the Bible and you want to live for Jesus, you strive for holiness in your life. But what happens when we don't meet that standard? Again, I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. I don't have a lock on how to do all of this. Sometimes I have thoughts that aren't right. Sometimes in a moment of anger, I say things I ought not say. Sometimes... Things happen in my life that are, they're not just mistakes, friend, they're, they're sins. I sin. I sin against my God. I sin against my Jesus. And the fact that I sin, it weighs me down. So I think, I mean, I've been a Christian a while now. I ought to be past this. I'm a preacher. I ought to be perfect, the standard. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And then I look at me and I think, not even close, brother, not even close. So what do I do when I sin? Does God angry? Does God hate me? Has he turned against me? Man, I go here. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Listen, this is a verse you ought to take to heart if you're someone who struggles with sin and it bothers you. Now, if you struggle with sin and it doesn't bother you, other verses you need. But if your sin weighs heavy on your heart, and if the fact that you wrestle with your sinful nature brings you down, you memorize this verse. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That means He's on our side. Sort of like a defense lawyer. But I don't want to get into that. Just think of it as Jesus is on your side. Now, we, we know that he's on our side when we do what's right. But this verse specifically says that Jesus is on our side when we do what's wrong. How hopeful is that? To know that when we sin, and I'm going to say when, not if, that when we sin, Jesus Christ is on our side even then. Speaking on our behalf 
to the Father. How hopeful is it to know that Jesus does not give up on us when we sin and when we blow it, that He is on our side. And then a final one is that Jesus has equipped me to make a difference. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now, I chose this particular verse specifically talking about spiritual gifts because it talks about the, the Spirit given to us. Because again, this is significant. When the Bible talks about the Spirit given to us, it speaks of the Spirit in terms of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, that's big, right? How powerful is that? And then He comes to live inside of us. But He doesn't just come to live within us to give us peace, although that's there. And He doesn't just come to, to live within us so that the love of God will be shed abroad in our hearts, and, and though that's there. And He doesn't even just come to live within us so that we can be sure of our salvation, though that's there. He comes to live within us so that we can do something to benefit others. Think about that. The, the, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you as a believer so that you can make a difference in the world around you. You and I, we are meant to make a difference. The God of heaven has put one third of the Godhead within us so that we can do things that would benefit those around us. And that's awesome, right? I mean, I, I come from nowhere. I come from a small town. I, I've joked before, but I come from Pickett Center. And it's called Pickett Center because on one side is Pickett, on the other side is Center, and we're in the middle of the two. The only thing that was ever interesting about the town I grew up in was the fact that if you went down the right country road, you could see a half acre of catfish heads stuck on fence posts, right? In various stages of decay. That's the only thing. My dad was a mechanic in a factory for 40-something years. He never wrote a book that the world read. People who don't go to church with him, didn't work with him, they don't know who he is, he's not famous. I haven't done famous things in my life. I'm never going to be vastly known in the world. But God has put the Spirit of God within me so that I can make a difference in the world. But what He's done in me, He's done in you. You have the ability within you as a believer in Jesus Christ to make the world a better place. To benefit those around you. To help them. To help them come to Jesus. Live for Jesus. Know that Jesus loves them. To encourage them when they're discouraged. Give them hope when they're despairing. To strengthen them when they're weak. Not that you should. Although you should. But you can. I mean, you are recreated. And filled with the Spirit of the living God. To make a difference. And that is a, that is a powerful, powerful thought. And these are just three of all of the promises that God has given to us. If we're to be a people of hope, we, we must take refuge in these promises. Because... If we've done bad things in our lives, Satan's going to remind us of our past, but we have to take refuge in the fact that we are a new creation. If 
you wrestle with your sinful nature, which if you're human, you do. You're going to fail at times. And Satan will press on you to condemn you. But you have to take refuge in the fact that Jesus is always your advocate, the Father. If you want to make a difference in the world, you can. Though the world is, and the enemy is going to press on you to tell you, who are you to think you can do anything to make the world a better place? You take refuge in the promise. There is a manifestation of the Spirit given to you for the benefit of others. You have to be convinced that these things are real. That these things are, are true. That they are unchanging and they are unfailing. But here's where we get to the, the word being the anchor. How are you going to know what God has promised you if you're not in the Bible? The promises that God has given are revealed to us in Scripture. We have to know what God has said before we can take refuge in His promises. Scripture is given to build and to strengthen our hope so that we can abound with hope. That means we have to study Scripture. But we, we have to be in the Bible. And I mentioned this in Sunday school. But be in the Bible, it refers to both public and private. Private, every one of us, we ought to have a time when we study the Bible for ourselves. We absolutely should. But keep in mind, in the Bible, when it talks about loving Scripture and desiring Scripture and hearing Scripture and studying Scripture, it never mentions being at home with your own personal copy of the Bible. You know why? That didn't exist. Instead, if people wanted to study the Bible in Bible times, they had to gather with believers. In the Old Testament, they had to get to the synagogues and listen as the, the Old Testament was taught in the New Testament. They had to gather with the church. You cannot take what the Bible says about studying the Bible and loving the Bible and take it to just be personal. It's meant to also be corporate. If you love God and you love His Word, you need to be where God's Word is preached and taught as well as have your own personal time of study. But then you have to believe it. I mean, when, when it says something, you have to believe it's true. I mean, do you really believe that you're a new creation? Do you believe that Jesus is your advocate with the Father when you sin? That His acceptance of you as a believer is not dependent upon your performance, but just on who He is? Do you believe that truly the Spirit of the living God lives within you, equipping you to make a difference in the world around you? Do you really believe it? We have to. We can't take refuge in a promise we don't believe. We have to study it. We have to believe it. But then we have to obey it. Remember, hope isn't a wish. It's not just we would love for things to be different. Abraham patiently endured. He lived day in and day out doing what God wanted him to do, believing the promise would come true. There's always something to do. There's always something to obey as we study the Scripture. There's always a change in our lives. There's always an attitude, an action, a word, a thought, a priority that needs to be revamped. If I want to be able to take refuge in Scripture, then I have to do whatever it is that God wants us to do. And all of this that we're talking about, taking refuge in God's promise, it's easy to do when we can see it all happening right then. We see our life has changed. We, we feel Jesus as our advocate. We see the Spirit working through us to make a difference. But what if we believe it? 
And we're trying, but we're just not seeing it come to pass. We're having to wait. Wait for the difference. Wait for the peace. Wait for the, the impact. Well, that's actually what we're going to talk about next week. So come back next week as we talk about waiting and hope. Abraham had to patiently endure to receive the promises. Chances are you and I are going to have to patiently endure as well. God's word is the anchor for our hope. So we must take refuge in God's promises. Secondly, trust God's character. Now, don't look around. But how many of you know somebody that they'll give you your word? Give you their word, they're going to do something. They'll make these great promises, but deep in your heart, you know, they don't mean it. It ain't never going to happen. Their word means very, very little to them. Their character is flawed, really is what it boils down to. Character is flawed. They don't keep their word. They don't do what they say. And if we're not careful, we can let the fact that other people are flawed in their character and in their nature cause us to doubt God's character and God's nature. Right, and what we have to do is we have to trust that, that God, He is who He says He is and He can do what He says He can do. That's what the author talks about in verses 16 and 17. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, He confirmed it with an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. But there are good reasons that we can trust God's promises, that he will do what he has said he will do. The first is that God does not change the, the immutability of his counsel. The word immutability, it essentially means that the unchangingness of God. But if God has said it in the past, then God is still going to do it in the present. He doesn't change his mind. At the same time, the, the unchangingness of God means that if God could do it in the past, he can still do it in the future. Right? What God has said, he can do. What God has said, he, he will do. He does not change ever. Secondly, for God to say he would do something or to say that he could do something and then not do it would make him a liar. And yet it is impossible for God to lie. Timothy, or I'm sorry, Titus. In Titus, Paul refers to God as the, the unlying God. God does not lie. His word is always true. God, he even took an oath in his own name to say, I, this is a guarantee that I will do what I have said I will do. It's sort of the equivalent of taking a, a legal contract. Right? God has guaranteed his word, his promises by his own nature. The promises of God fail, then the nature of God fails. If the promises of God don't come to pass, then the nature of God takes a hit. So God is faithful. He will always do what he said he will do. And that enables us to, to flee for refuge and lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Now, the idea of fled for refuge, it, it pictures a person who fled to one of the cities of refuge that provided protection for someone who accidentally killed another person in the Old Testament. Right? They could go there and in the city of refuge, they could not be killed for what they had done. They were safe there. As Christians, we have fled for safety, fled for refuge. 
to a place of security and protection from the punishment against sin. Right? And we have to take refuge in his promises, refusing to leave no matter what. No matter what happens, no matter what goes on, no matter what anyone says. We hold on to these promises. They are true. God's character is unchanging. He is faithful to do what he has said he would do. Now, there's a lot of ways that God's faithfulness is seen. And really, it impacts every area of our lives. But the one that we need to know most, because this is key, is in regards to salvation. It is in regards to God has said he would forgive, he would save, and he would deliver us. Does God ever change his mind? Are there people that God won't save? Are there believers, maybe, who backslide that God won't restore? How can we know? Because if God will do that, then we can be sure he'll do the rest. I want to show you a great passage. Turn to Deuteronomy 4. Uh, page 143, it's, it's Deuteronomy 4 and verse 29 is where we're going to start at. Moses speaking to the Israelites before he dies. He says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you seek him with all of your heart. With all of your soul. Now that's a pretty good promise, isn't it? If we seek God with all our heart and all of our soul, we'll find God. That, that's a tremendous promise, no matter what. But in my Bible, I've circled, but from there. Because that's part of what makes this promise so amazing. So, so what does it mean, but from there? Well, look up at verse 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and made for your, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you beget children and grandchildren have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish. From the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess, you will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. This is getting pretty bad, right? And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve God's the work of men's hands, wood and stone that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. So it pictures a time. In which the Israelites, they go into the land, but they begin to, to be unfaithful to God. They begin to worship idols and to, to do all the things that God has said not to do. Now, there are going to be consequences for that. They're going to reap what they sow. They're going to be scattered among the people. They're going to be so bad that, in fact, they're going to end up worshiping, being forced to worship the gods of the other lands, false gods and idols. But from there... But from that place of punishment, but from that place of chastisement, from that place where they are suffering the consequences for their own sins, if they seek God, they will find Him. And then when they're in distress, verse 30, all these things will come upon you in the latter days when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He'll not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. How awesome is that, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I've been from there before in my life. I've been in positions where 
the world around me felt like it was collapsing, at least in my mind, and it was all my fault. I, I couldn't blame circumstances. I couldn't blame another human being. It was just me. I'd done bad things. I'd made bad choices, and I was reaping the consequences for those bad choices. I mean, isn't it good to know that from there, though, we can call out to the Lord, and, and He will be found by us. He will bring us out. He will restore us to a place where we can serve Him and go back to the way things ought to be. God answers these prayers. He cares for us. There are times where we may believe we've been so unfaithful to God that He would, he would never forgive us. He would never restore us, that we are done as far as God is concerned. But that's wrong. No matter how unfaithful we have been to the Lord, no matter how many times we have violated our covenant with God, no matter how great the consequences we are facing because of our sin, the promise is that from there, if we seek the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, we'll find Him. That He is a, a merciful, merciful God. We can depend upon this because God will keep His promises. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the Apostle John says. God's character ensures that He will do everything He has said He will do. No matter how big or how small, how challenging it may seem. And we can trust God's go ahead and turn back to Hebrews 6, that God's character will guarantee His promises, that God will not lie, that He will not change His mind. But how do we know what God's character is like? How do we know what God will do or will not do? God's character is revealed in God's Word. If we want to know what God is like, we must be in His Word. If we want to know what God is like so that we can trust His nature and take refuge in His promises, then we must be in the only book that God wrote. The only book where God authoritatively reveals Himself to us. And I always want to point out, and this may sound silly, but I hope you'll let me explain, that God is real. And what I mean by God being real is that he, He's already like something. Uh, God is not my invention nor yours. Therefore, I don't get to make up what God is like. I don't get to determine what God's character is like, what God's nature is like, what God's standards are like, but, but neither do you. Or a theologian or another pastor or a book that you read. Nobody gets to do that. God's character and God's nature, it, it's not dependent upon our popular culture. It's not dependent upon my feelings or your feelings. It's not dependent upon our opinions. God's character and God's nature is not up for debate. God is real, therefore He's already like something. And what that means for us is we have to either accept God as He is or we have to reject Him because we don't like Him as He is. The moment we begin to, to mold God... We don't make Him better and we don't make Him more of what He ought to be. We, we lessen Him. We depart from the living God and we begin to worship an idol of our own creation. 
If I want to know what God is like, I can't watch the 700 Club. And I can't read the books at the Christian bookstore. And I can't listen just to preach. And I've got to, what does the Bible say? Who does God reveal that He is and what He's like? Because even if I say it, if it contradicts what's here, I'm wrong. And this is right. So if we want to know what God is like, we have to be in His Word. What God is like is dependent on on God who is real and what He really is like. He has revealed this in His Word and we have to be in the Word. For to trust in God's character so that we can take refuge in His promises, we must know what His Word says about who He is so that His Word can be the anchor of our hope. So we take refuge in God's promises, we trust in God's character, and then finally we lay hold of God's Son. We are told in verse 19 that the hope we have is like an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. The idea behind sure and steadfast is that it's unbending and unwavering and it cannot be dislodged. It means no matter what the storms that come into our lives or into our world, the anchor will hold. Now, in order for an anchor to have that kind of security, to give that kind of confidence to a ship, it must be hooked in something pretty significant. Something that is bigger and stronger than the storms that are raging around it. Something that no matter how strong the winds are or how big the waves are, it will not dislodge it. So what is our anchor lodged in? Well, sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Our anchor is hooked to Jesus. Goes in behind the veil, the author says, and, and behind the veil to the, old, to the Hebrews who were reading this, it pictured the temple where it was divided up into the common area place where the priests went and then the, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God among his people. And not everybody could go there, only the high priest and only once a year and only with a sacrifice. The picture of our anchor is that it goes through the outer courts and into the very presence of God. Really what it's the picture I think we ought to have from this. It's not that our anchor is lodged in a thing, but our anchor is held by a person. The anchor for our hope, the anchor for our lives is held securely in the hands of Jesus Christ, who is in the presence of God, sitting at his right hand, interceding for us. The picture is that Jesus, he secures our hope. He makes our hope certain. He makes our hope. What is the words? Steadfast and immovable. How does Jesus secure our hope in this fashion? These two verses are really important. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, Timothy, was not yes and no, but in Him was yes. For all of the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God. In Romans, Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that God created Adam and Eve and He put them in the garden, place of perfection. 
They had a purpose. They had near perfect communion with God. They had only one rule. They were not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they did. They took of that fruit and they ate of it. And the moment they did, they died spiritually and they were pushed out of the garden. But in the very moment that they did that, God gave a promise that one day the seed of the woman would come and she would crush the head of the serpent, break his hold upon mankind, break his power to destroy, to deceive, to kill. And that promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ on the cross. So God gave a promise thousands of years ago that he fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross that was his only begotten son. The point of these verses is that God kept a promise that required the death of his son. I mean, that's a big thing, right? I mean, God gave a promise that he would destroy the works of Satan in the lives of people, that he would set us free and he would make us new. And that promise required him to send his only begotten son to earth for the purpose of dying on the cross. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. On the cross, Jesus, he, he basically took hell. All the horrors that the Bible describes about hell were poured out on Jesus on the cross. It wasn't just the nails and the whippings and the thorns that hurt. It was the horrors of hell, the punishment for sin that was poured out upon him. And God did all of that to keep a promise to us, for us. The idea is if God did that, then won't he do everything else? If God did that which is most... Won't he do that which is least? I mean, if I can really look at the cross and I can see that Jesus died there for me to fulfill God's promise to me and for me. then surely I can believe that Jesus is my advocate with the Father, right? I mean, if, if Jesus came and suffered all of that on my behalf, surely he's going to make me into a new creation. If Jesus went through all of that, then surely I am meant to make a difference in the world. If Jesus did all of that for me to keep a promise to me, then everything else is like gravy. I can definitely trust everything else. Because there is no promise that compares to that. There is nothing that compares to that. Everything else is almost minor in comparison. So we lay hold of God's Son because in Him there is a steadfast hope that will not be shaken, that will not fail. But it's important to understand that that hope is only found in Jesus. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ and what He has done for us on the cross. If I want the hope that is meant to be an anchor for my soul, then I must lay hold on Jesus Christ. And God's word, it always leads me to Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible will always lead us to Jesus. 
So if we want to lay hold of Jesus, we get in the book that tells us about who He is and what He's done and what His death on our behalf means for us and how we're to live in response to that. Jesus is everything. God's Word leads us to Jesus. Jesus is the certainty of the promises of God. Jesus reveals to us the nature of God. And all of this is found in God's Word. We must be a people of the book. God's Word, it is the anchor of our hope. And if we want a hope that will lead us to believe better, whether it's for our lives, for our families, for our culture, for our church, for our children. That hope is found through Jesus that is revealed in the Word. We must let the Word be the anchor of our hope. Let's stand.